Hello and welcome to the Leading Through Uncertainty podcast series. I'm your host, Jude Jennison from Leaders by Nature. And in this podcast, I interview leaders from different organisations and industries to find out more about the challenges they face in leading through uncertainty and how they overcome them. This week, I'm talking to Stephen Maddock, OBE, the CEO of the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra. After 19 years as the CEO, you'd think there's not much that Stephen hasn't seen. But he explains the uncertainty of leading a world-class orchestra that relies on a mix of government funding, which has been largely slashed in the last few years, charitable donations and commercial income. That's a lot to balance. He explains how the organisation has changed over the years and the challenges he faces. Hi Stephen. Hi. Thank you for joining me today. Nice to be here. For the benefit of the listeners, can you explain who you are and what you do here? Yeah, so my name is Stephen Maddock and I am the Chief Executive of the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra. Uh, I've had this job for nearly 19 years now. I think it's almost 19 years ago today I was appointed actually um, and started in summer of 1999, so just in the last century. Um, and my job is to, uh, you know, in very simple terms, run a charity. Mm-hmm. It's about a £9 million turnover. And we employ about 120 people, um, professional musicians and admin staff. Um, as well as being a charity, we're also a company. So part of my role is, you know, three different hats, really. One of which is being at times almost like an extension of the public sector because we get public funding, about mm-hmm. 30% of our income is from the public sector. Hat two is uh, as a charity boss, you know, fundraising, education work, charitable activities, so it constitutes as a charity. And hat number three is... Um, Commercial, you know, so the rest of our income comes from selling tickets, selling the orchestra services to other promoters, concert halls, festivals, touring, record companies, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have to um, have, uh, you know, several different ways of, of kind of facing the world and talking to people, um, which are at times, you know, as I say, very charitable and philanthropic, at other times quite political and sort of... Um, uh, Say thinking of ourselves as an extension of public sector, and a lot of the times, you know, very, very commercial. So and you that's have an to interesting be, balance. Yeah, yeah <laughs> so you have to be jack of all trades and master yeah. of all. Yeah, that's the that's <laughs> the basic idea, and 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 also for me, and this is not this is this is it's not unusual in the arts, but it's certainly not the way that all arts organisations are run these days. Um, I do have a job that combines the artistic content and the financial. So some organisations nowadays, because arts organisations have become bigger and more complex, have split those out. So they have an artistic director and then perhaps an executive director who looks after the money. Um, In our case, although I don't make the musical stand on stage, we do have a music director who's effectively the person who conducts, you know, the largest number of concerts and is responsible for, you know, the major decisions around the programme as a whole. Nevertheless, I'm the, you know, the person who has to take ultimate responsibility for balancing the artistic and the financial mm. together. Mm. Um, and of course, you know, as I frequently say, every artistic decision has a financial consequence and vice versa. So it helps to be able to understand both. Right. Otherwise, you end up with a situation where people dream their dreams, which is wonderful, but dreaming dreams can be very expensive very quickly. Mm-hmm. And in, in certainly running orchestras in the UK and certainly one like the CBSO where our public funding has been diminishing both in cash terms and as a percentage, mm-hmm. you, you can quickly run out of money if you 
make the wrong decisions mm. too many times. So I think the board, our board feels more comfortable feeling that the person who is responsible for the majority of the programme also, you know, is responsible for the money. And then if stuff goes wrong, you know, I, there's only one person to blame. Mm. So would you say you're the mad creative or you're, or are you the accountant or both? Both. <laughs> and that's what's, that's what's quite interesting. And I think, I guess I've found ways over the years of sort of... Um, yeah, accommodating myself with with both roles really. Mm. Um, at the moment, so you know, in in April where we are now, we've just sent. In fact, like, like first thing tomorrow morning, our brochure for the next season goes to press. So the last few weeks, I've spent quite a lot of time being very creative about things. Um, but then once the season is set and decided on. You know, the most important thing is to make sure the concerts run smoothly, make sure the contracts are in place, and then make sure you sell all the tickets. So mm. you go from having very creative concerns to having very practical and financial concerns, really, for the rest of the process. Um, I think I, you know, I have a great love of music. Programming is my background. I've spent the last 28 years working with, uh, so all my career, working with musicians, conductors, composers, artists, agents, uh, and you know, trying to come up with, you know, interesting and imaginative ways of putting, mm. you know, um, putting music together, putting programmes together, developing artists, all of that. So I think mm. that, you know, you couldn't do my job without an enthusiasm for that mm. and indeed without a great deal of knowledge of those things. But I'm very conscious I'm also the boss and I'm also responsible for the finances and it's... Uh, and the operation. Say, and the yeah. operation, it's complicated. Mm. So you know, it is very easy, if you take your eye off the ball too quick, mm. for, for, for too long, um, it's very easy for the, for the finances to go very wrong. I think I think that's true of the arts in general in this country. It's certainly true of all the orchestras and it's very specifically true of ours because we've had bigger cuts to our funding than pretty much any other major orchestra in the world. Right. So everything's at the margins. You have to work incredibly hard on selling tickets, on uh, fundraising, and on controlling your costs, yeah. and on programming the things that where you're stretching yourselves artistically enough, but also in a way that is still going to hit those box office targets. Mm. So, um, you know, my, I guess my experience of doing that has, has been helpful, but, you know, it's still very difficult. We still get it wrong. I mean, the one thing we know about our box office projections for each concert is they will definitely be wrong. Yes. You just hope that the <laughs> wrong in the right direction. Yeah, you know, the stuff that go go wrong the right way outnumber the ones that go wrong, mm. wrong, wrong the wrong way. Yeah. So you've been in post for 19 years. Yeah. Over that time, you must have seen massive changes. What What are the key standout moments of leading through uncertainty for you in that time? Yeah, it's interesting because, um, uh, as I say, we have sort of two categories of employees, really, we have musicians and we have the staff. Um, for the musicians, it, it, it's easy to imagine that actually the job hasn't changed very much. You know, Beethoven's Fifth, which we've just been playing all around Europe, is still Beethoven's Fifth. Mm -hmm. I mean, actually, it's a bit faster now than it was 20 mm -hmm. years ago, but in most performances, but nevertheless, it's still basically the same notes. So it is easy to, you know, if we're not careful, for the musician's eye perspective of the world to be that nothing much has changed. Now, in reality, quite a lot has changed for the musicians here at the CBSO, but I think upstairs to the staff things, you know, the pace of change is much more rapid. So, mm -hmm. you know, when I was first here in 1999, just at the end of, the, just after Simon Rattle had left his um, 18 years as, 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 as 
chief conductor and music director. Um, you know, there was, for instance, very little marketing function. There was, you know, you put out a brochure and because most people bought their tickets on subscription, mm. that you didn't have to do a lot more. People mm -hmm. would just renew their subscriptions. Now we sell very little on subscription. Almost everything is single tickets. Right. And of course, most of those tickets these days are sold online. So, the so that brings a lot more that, uncertainty than when you sold a whole season ticket. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so through the through the early years when Symphony Hall, uh, which was opened in 1991, the first you know five or six years of Symphony Hall, I mean, nearly all the tickets for nearly everything were sold straight away, the programme went on sale mm. to people who'd been coming every year before. Mm -hmm. Well, that's massively, I'm, I'm sure my predecessors would say it wasn't easy, but you know, <laughs> from today's vantage point, that looks much, much easier. Mm. Um, whereas today for us, literally with every single concert, if it is to find an audience, that will be an audience of people who are having to choose to go to that concert because they want to be there, mm. rather than because it's a habit. Mm. Um, so a few people have got a subscription, but say vast majority of ticket sales are now single tickets. Um, the internet barely, you know, barely existed for the arts when I mm. started in '99. I mean, we had a website, but it was pretty rudimentary. Um, we had email just about. I think that had been installed in the year before I started but of course all electronic communications have changed mm -hmm. and recognition you know obviously mm -hmm. social media didn't exist all of that um even down to some of the you know still quite analog bits of what we do like the printed music sheet music i mean yes our musicians still sit there with a, a you know piece of printed music in front of them that might be for some pieces you know 50 or 60 years old itself but actually our librarian also these days has to be a, a computer whiz of all kinds of different ways and so um, instead of sending the music if we've got a player coming from overseas they'll get sent an email PDF of the music because it's all been um, digitized into our library mm -hmm. um, the world of, of you know recording and, 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 and radio and, and CDs is very very different I mean far mm -hmm. fewer CDs being produced these days than was the case in the past um, you know how we're able to work remotely from wherever we are, it's changed hugely. I mean, when I was first here, you could, you know, if you were in the office, you could look at your email and you could, you know, look at memos and other physical things. If you're out and about, you maybe had a mobile phone, but that was it. Well, now mm. I look at my emails, I update the CDSO's Twitter feed, I look at things on a shared drive, I will proof documents, I will do whatever it is from anywhere in the world, any time of day or night. Mm. So mm. that's some stuff that's got a lot. Mm. Which easier. is common everywhere, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it's just a world business. we live in now, isn't to it? To every business. And, you know, I think, you know, on the whole, those things are all huge improvements. Mm. Um, I mean, I think you know, we, we, like every business, have the, the issues about, you know, the sort of always-on culture and whether that is fair on employees, mm. particularly a lot of our employees who are you know, not particularly well-paid. I think, you know, there's probably an issue for all of us about how you build some limits into that mm. uh, fr from here on in. But I think certainly the, you know, for, 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 for business, which is... Um, by definition, worldwide, you know, we do tour in the last mm -hmm. two years. We've been to the Middle East, we've been to China, we've been to Japan, we've been all around Europe, all around the UK. You know, actually being able to do anything that we need to be able to do from anywhere mm. is is fantastically mm. helpful. Um, and what's the mood like when you go to a new country, for example, like when you go to China for the first time or the Middle East? What's the oh, what's the mood like of the of the orchestra and the and the support? Mostly very positive, actually. I mean, there was a little bit of uncertainty. I mean, when we, I think China was was an interesting one, and to a degree Abu Dhabi actually, because you know, I think people were very conscious these are not 
as open um, societies, perhaps, as we used to in Europe. We do a huge amount of touring in Europe, and we've been to Japan a lot of times, so and people sort of know their way around Japan now, that's fine. But China, there's a little bit more uncertainty, mm. and, and the same true for, for, for Abu Dhabi. But I think on, you know, once you get there, I mean, we, you know, we make sure we're staying in good hotels, you know, the transport arrangements are very well done, everyone's very well looked after. Mm. So actually, mostly there was just a great excitement of mm. discovering mm. somewhere new. Mm. Um, so you make it as easy as you can. Correct. To, we yeah. try to do that. And of course, the reception from audiences is always fantastic. So mm. if anything, the reception in the sort of new markets for classical music is even more enthusiastic than it is in the older markets. I mean, we've just been touring around Germany and Austria and Holland, and we, you know, we always get great response. But, but you know, those are audiences that hear orchestras all the time, have the opportunity to hear an orchestra every week if they want to. Mm. Whereas if you go to some cities that think that's a new thing or, mm. or a very rare thing, then mm. actually the result can be even more sort of... Um, you know, joyful and unexpected. Mm. And how does that affect the playing? Um, I think actually uh, there's always a degree of, you know, there's always a sort of baseline of professionalism to every concert that we do. So even if, yeah, we, you know, from time to time you play in a really terrible acoustic or a place where the backstage is not very good mm -hmm. or maybe you're playing somewhere where the acoustics aren't great and there's not a big audience all about. But actually, the, the yeah, the level of playing never drops below mm. a certain level. But I think we all That's just another bad day in the office, isn't correct. it? But there's a pressureism. <laughs> Absolutely, you know. yeah. Um, but I think, I think we all recognise that occasionally you get that sort of wonderful alchemical moment where all the circumstances are aligned and you get something that's really very special in the mm. concerts that people talk about for years afterwards, and that's some combination of a really attentive audience, a, you know, a programme that's really well rehearsed with an inspiring conductor and soloist, you know, a hall that is in, inspires you to play better. Mm, mm. Um, so yeah, we we do we do have high points as well. I mean, as I say, course, it's not yeah. a it's not a peaks and troughs. It's mm, a mm. it's a baseline mm. with some peaks above. Mm. Is how I would see it really. Mm. In terms of halls, we're very lucky because our hall at Symphony Hall in Birmingham is one of the very best in the world. Mm. So um, almost nothing is as good. So that's that's always a you know. Um, uh, an interesting point of comparison mm. for people. We have some that are different and, and still very good. Mm -hmm. But there was a point last week where we came back from our tour, played some very fine things, including the music for Vienna. But there was a collective sense of, ah, oh, here we are back at Hogan Symphony Hall. We know how everything sounds. It's a full house. The audience are pleased to see us back from the tour. We only wait two weeks, but, you know, feels feels like a, a, a sort of splendid homecoming. Mm. And that really lifts the, the playing as well, right. for sure. So it's like playing at home for a football team, for yeah, example. Exactly. Or, yeah. yeah, yeah, you've been you're playing to the home the, crowd. Exactly. Yeah, exactly, mm. absolutely. And we take we take create some of that for us when we go abroad. So the concerts we've just done in in Budapest and Vienna, we took fifty of our own CBSA supporters with us. So we take a bit of travelling supporters uh, as well, which is really nice mm. as well. They really they really enjoy the fact that there's some familiar faces there in the audience cheering us on. Great. So, what's the biggest challenge you've ever faced in your career? Um, I think, I think le le probably you know a couple of general ones and a couple of specific ones. So, to start with the general, I think um, making the finances work for um, an orchestra such as this, and indeed specifically for this orchestra has been very, very challenging. And that's you know, that has never stopped being challenging. And frankly, you know, the orchestra's been here since 1920. Mm -hmm. I look at the history of the orchestra between 1920 and 1999. 
there was never a point at which the you know the finances were that stable. So that is a constant battle, mm -hmm. and whether that's the public funding or whether that's challenges with sponsorship or whether it's challenges with touring or, 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 or things like that, you know, it's never been easy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we are in a stronger position now than at any previous time in one sense, in that we do at least have some reserves. We have a bit of an endowment, we have some reserves. Um, so we could weather a couple of tricky years now. I mean, probably only a couple, but, you know, mm -hmm. certainly when I started, the orchestra had a deficit that was ballooning up towards a million, then a million and a half quite quickly after I arrived. Um, and, you know, you, at that point, it's a very different set of discussions mm -hmm. about, you know, will, 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 will the bank give us an overdraft? You mm -hmm. know, how do you manage cash flow mm -hmm. to within an inch of your lives? So, I, you know, I'm very relieved we're no longer in that sort of position. Mm -hmm. um, but the, you know, that remains f forever challenging. I think, I think more generally as well, um, I think for, you know, we, we're very conscious that we are at the, if, you know, if, if the, if, the performing arts and and you know, cultural organisations in this country, any country, are on a continuum from, you know, very contemporary, very non-traditional um, at one end and very heritage at the other end. You know, at the far end, at the very heritage end, I guess you've got, you know, Staley Homes of the National Trust um, mm -hmm. uh, and perhaps, you know, the Royal Opera House, you know, is a bit closer to that end of the spectrum than we are. But we're conscious of the Symphony Orchestra, you, you know, you, you, you're towards that end of mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, what we've done, a lot of the story of the, really of the last 30, 40 years here, not, you know, this is something I've, I've continued rather than initiated, but CBSO has been one of the orchestras that I think has played a very leading role over the last 40 years in, in you know, playing lead on is um, beyond what you do on the concert platform just with the orchestra. There are a lot of other musical activities that you can do. And in our case, that's, we run a fantastic adult chorus that's auditioned. We run an amazing youth chorus, children's chorus, and our audition community choir. We have an absolutely outstanding youth orchestra. Mm -hmm. We have an amazing education program. We have a lot of activities here at CBSA Centre. We have a wonderful sister organisation, Birmingham Contemporary Music Group that does that only plays music by living composers. So we've done, and then the, the education outreach program itself includes wonderful things such as work with kids with special needs, such as concerts for people with dementia, children care homes as well as here, have a big strand of relaxed concerts. We have notes which are concerts for preschool kids. So you know, it, we we have tried very hard to make sure that it's not just the same kind of art mm. repeated again to the same mm -hmm. kind of audiences. But of course, at the heart of what we do, there's a certain amount of that. Yeah. And I think for a symphony orchestra, you are, to a degree, um, always going to be a, a you know a, a little bit a prisoner of the repertoire that he, the pre-existing repertoire that exists. The same is true for ballet companies. It's much less true for theatre these days because mm -hmm. the number of living playwrights mm -hmm. that an audience will turn out to see, and the number of ways in which living playwrights can engage with the modern world probably still is greater than it's yeah. possible for orchestras and classical music. So 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 there is that. I mean this you know, I think what I'm saying is true for opera, it's true for ballet, but less true for theatre, less true for galleries, mm. I think, probably. Yeah. Um so I think I think the big challenge there is about how we make what we do as relevant as possible, how we make it as um friendly and accessible as possible, and how we demonstrate that what we do has real social value into the future. Mm -hmm. Now, I think we do quite a good job of that, and mm -hmm. I certainly don't 
sit here worrying as to whether we do have such a value because I know, I see firsthand on a daily, if not weekly basis, how people respond to the work that we do mm. at concerts, mm. you know, the smaller scale things, education, mm. work, participation and so on. So, you know, and, 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 you know, we spend no time literally sitting around worrying whether we're too elitist. I don't even understand what that term means. I get very cross with people who sort of throw it at us because actually mm. I don't think classical music is difficult. I think certain kinds of classical music is difficult, but as a genre, mm-hmm. it's, it's not, I mean, I find poetry difficult, but mm. I accept that that's probably because I haven't spent enough time, you know, studying it. Mm. Um, I don't think classical music per se is inherently any more difficult than film or visual arts or, or theatre. Mm-hmm. Um, but we perhaps don't always do, you know, good enough job of, 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 of making the case. And also, uh, there's certain sort of media stereotypes that are a bit unhelpful on this. But I think, I think you know, you certainly can't be complacent on those things. So spending, so the big challenge, I guess, for us is just about how you share what you're doing as widely as possible in as friendly a way as possible in a way that you know, encourages a, an ever bigger audience and makes the case that, you know, all the people who fund your work, public sector, private sector, and so on, that you're a good investment. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true. And so I, I distinguish the two points, that from the basic sort of going concern aspect, because I think the second point is true for any organisation. Like, you know, if you are the Berlin Philharmonic in receipt of, you know, tens of millions of subsidy, and you're probably never really worrying about whether you can meet cash flow at the end of mm-hmm. the month, mm-hmm. but I think you still have to ask yourself those questions yeah. about relevance um, and... Uh, social purpose. Mm-hmm. In terms of the specific challenges for us, well, in my time here, so I think, cert- well, you know, you get significant uncertainty at times of leadership change, of course, and the most visible leader for a symphony orchestra is not me or the chair of the board, it's the chief conductor, it's mm-hmm. the music director. So I came in at the time when Rattle had just left, Zachary Oromo had just started, um, that was a difficult challenge because he was not as well known, Rattle, you know, there was a sort of, um, I guess, uh, lazy snobbery from sort of commentators from around the rest of the UK that sort of what went up must come down, you know, that the CBSO would now sort of revert to the mean of being a good but not outstanding orchestra based in based in the Midlands and, you know, the same level as the other regional orchestras, not as good as the ones in London, etc, etc, etc. And so the challenge at the start when I came in was to prove, no, that's not the case. We've reached here with Rattle and we're going to get even higher so now. So it's not just to maintain the standard, Correct. but to exceed it. Yeah. Um, and I think we did a good job of that. And uh, certainly, you know, Zachary had a tenure, tenure here, which was extremely successful. You know, he's now doing great things with Stockholm Philharmonic and BBC Symphony Orchestra. And... I think we did a good job of, of proving to the world that there was life uh, after Rattle, mm-hmm. which some people didn't give as much you know, credit for doing at, at the start. And I mm-hmm. think just as Simon left you know, a much better orchestra to Zachary than he'd inherited, I think Zachary left a better orchestra to his successor. But so I've, I've, I've come in at the end, you know, sort of as that transition was happening, really, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd not appointed Zachary, but came in just after he'd started. And then... I've had to manage the transition from Zachary to choosing his successor, Andrus Nelsons, and then managing that succession. And then again, when Andrus left in, in 2015, after eight, after seven years, uh, finding his successor uh, and, and managing that transition to to Mirko Grosjeanie to Tila. So I think I think, but for but for audiences, for the players, and I think to a degree for. Um, 
the public funders and other stakeholders as well. That always creates quite a lot of uncertainty because mm. the conductor is the very public face. Mm. And because we've had such a successful run here for particularly those last, um, these, well now these last four, including me again, um, there is an expectation that Sigurdsson will pull something brilliant out of the hat each time. Right. So you have so to I, keep I, raising your bar. Correct. So you can, you can either use that as, um, oh, therefore I'm really worried that we're not going to do that, or you can use it, the other side of the coin is, you should have absolute confidence that the CBSA will get it right and, you know, don't worry. And that was what mm. I was tending to say to people. Mm. But I found that it's a lot choice, of my really, time, it is. Mm. And we took two, you know, we take our time. So so yeah. that search to, to go from Andrus to Mega took about two and a quarter years in the end. Right. Um, there was only a one-year gap between them, but the, the, the search process took two, 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 two and a quarter years. And a lot of my time in that, I mean, obviously a lot of my time was spent you know, making lists, discussing the search committee, going to here, conductors, all that. But probably the task that took me most time, or of, of anything, was that reassurance mm. to, to other people of don't worry about this. You know, we were, we wanted to be very open about our process and extremely discreet and confidential about the actual names. So spending lots and lots of time talking to people in such a way that you're reassuring them without actually telling them anything yeah. became a, a sort of you know, core skill for those couple of years. Um, so I think the uncertainty around conduct change would be one challenge. I think you know regular uncertainty about the public funding has been a, an issue, and I think over the last ten years, as local government in this country has gradually sort of been been lent on and squashed into sort of submission by national government, that's been a big challenge for mm. us. So Birmingham City Council, the biggest local authority in Europe, you know, at one point the most generous funder of, of UK orchestras is now at least generous. Um, so our total funding is is you know worse than the, the comparative orchestras in, in Bournemouth, Liverpool, Manchester, Glasgow, London. Um, and you know, so dealing with that uncertainty, de dealing with the fact that it's not that they don't love us anymore, as I say to the orchestra, you know, mm, I mean, this, mm. it's it, the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak yes, is the problem. Yeah. Um, so so dealing with that, managing that relationship, dealing with the fact that unlike the Arts Council, which these days decides on and communicates its funding to you, you know, three or four years at a time, City Council, you often don't know until two or three months out, mm, mm. if you're lucky, four months, but... So there's that, and that has remained very uncertain. We also spent a quite a long time, um, about half a decade ago, um, really asking some quite searching questions about the relationship between our organisation, the CBSO, our Hall where we're resident, our Hall Symphony Hall, and a few of the other music organisations in Birmingham. There was everything from lots of work on collaboration through to some quite detailed work on possible organisational mergers mm -hmm. that went on. Uh, in the end, we decided not to, and it, you know, it, it, we all agreed that it was not in the best interest um, to do that. And I think that was the right decision. But it, it, you know, it took a lot of time, and I think it you know, created a, a degree of uncertainty mm. for our uh, employees. Um, I mean, less so for our stakeholders, because they mostly weren't aware of what was going on. We tried not to create too much. I prefer not to create too much sort of um, worry in mm -hmm. people. You know, mm -hmm. I, I tend not to worry Because uncertainty does create worry for people, it, doesn't it's it? It's sort of viral, you know. Yeah. And I, I, you know, so, so a, very, a very small example know. of that mm -hmm. is, a very small example of that is, you know, we do 130 concerts a year, you know, um, each concert has a conductor and a soloist, sometimes more than one. 
So from time to time, people cancel. Uh, and sometimes they cancel on the day of the concert, and sometimes they cancel a few weeks before. But we only ever tell the world about a cancellation once we're telling them the replacement. Because otherwise, that's exactly the point that mm. you say, mm. Our pianist for this concert in three weeks' time is cancelled. We'll let you know when we've got yes. someone else. And you have to it's not a great message, is it? <laughs> you know, and, and of course, what you know, marketing department will say to me is, well, when will you have a replacement? And I say, well, it, you know, it could be one phone call or it could be a whole day. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, we've had cancellations conductors where I've had to go through 50 or 60 names to mm -hmm. find somebody who can do it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's the first person you think of. So you don't know mm -hmm. how long it's going to take. Mm -hmm. But I think on the whole, it's better not just to give people a whole lot of stuff to worry about. Mm. So I tend to sort of prefer to take the worry on a smaller number of shoulders mm. when we can. Mm. Um, for exactly that In the knowledge reason. that you have to fix it in somehow. Yeah, anyway, fix so, it. Yeah. Well, the thing about concerts <laughs> is that, you know, it's all on project management with extremely fixed uh, deadlines. Mm. So, you know, mm. if we've got a concert, I mean, we've had, we had three in three weeks in, in, in February this year, where a, a, either a conductor or a solo was cancelling you know, the day or at most two or three days before their first rehearsal, you, you know you will have to find a solution. Mm. I've been doing mm. this long enough to know that there mm. is always mm. a solution. It may not be your first choice. It mm. may be your 10th or your 20th choice, but there will be a solution. Mm. But it's got to be done by the end of the day. Yeah. Because otherwise I've got 90 people sat downstairs wondering what they're meant to be doing. Mm. So, mm. you know, you, 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 you have to... Um, to have a certain amount of confidence and a certain amount of focus on those things. But as I say, just even with those things, you know, we tend no need to tell the orchestra once we've got a solution, unless we need their help in finding a solution. Yeah. Sometimes we'll tell the artistic committee because we'll have to dialogue with them about mm. who we might involve or, or if we need to change a programme or something. Mm -hmm. But I don't tend to say to the whole orchestra, oh, the solo is cancelled. Because then again, they're just worrying about mm. it all day. Mm. Or they're spending, you know, they're coming and asking us every five minutes what's happening, which is distracting us from the process of getting the solution. Yeah. So, although on the whole, you know, I, my, my general style and that of the, you know, I hope of the management here is is quite, you know, inclusive and communicative mm. and so on. I think when you're dealing with particular uncertainty, particularly unplanned uncertainty, mm. as opposed to sort of you know, just ongoing uncertainty that everyone's aware of, I think there's something to be said for just just you know, choose your moment for for saying things yeah. and, and don't don't communicate too much too yeah. soon because all you'll do is multiply the uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And what kind of leader are you? I'm not very, not a very reflective one, so I can't mm -hmm. probably can't give you the right answer to that. Um, I think I'm, I'm quite balanced. Mm -hmm. I think I, I, you know, when my, my degree was in politics, philosophy, economics, and uh, I spent most of my time at university, you know, not studying those things, but going to <laughs> running orchestras, running choirs, singing in choirs, organising things. So, you know, I got my my professional experience from from doing those things uh, at university, and then. Straight away when I left, I started working at the BBC um, uh, for nine years and then in here for 19. I, but I think I'm what the PPE training gave me is a, a, a rigour about, you know, looking at evidence, considering all the factors, weighing it up, um, and then making a decision with all the facts in front of you. Mm. So I tend to be like that. I tend to be, I'm occasionally be a little bit indecisive, but I think on the whole, I, I like to just know all the facts. And then I know why I've made a decision that I do stick to it. Mm. Um, I think I'm pretty uh, um, accessible. I'm not too scary. People can come in and find me, ask me a question. They don't have to have an appointment. I'm not too hierarchical in that sense. We have a senior management team. Um, we take it in turns to chair the meetings. Our staff meetings, we take it in turns to chair the meetings. We try not to be too, you know, top-down, um, 
you know, all transmit and no receive. Um, uh, and I think, you know, I, I, I think, my, you know, my reputation is of being probably a little, you know, perhaps, perhaps a bit, a bit intellectual rather than emotional in that respect. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly down in the detail when I need to be. So, you know, I'm very knowledgeable about music and of course having been here such a long time, I'm very knowledgeable about orchestras in general and this orchestra in particular. Mm -hmm. So I think, I'm, you know, I'm, I don't spend a lot of time talking about grand visions and vision statements. I mean, we have one, we just did a, quite a good piece of work on that actually. Uh, and, you know, I recognise that that's important, but it's not the thing that's going to most preoccupy me or get me out of bed in mm. the morning because I think it's sort of, you know, I've absorbed that into my DNA anyway after mm. the time here. I don't need to read the vision statements in order to understand what I'm meant to be doing yeah. on Monday morning. Mm. Um, and so I don't what tend... fires you up in the morning? Oh, the, a, an enthusiasm for for the work that we do. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I, um, I come to almost every concert. And for me, the fact that, you know, and off, often that would be music, you know, the concert we're playing tomorrow night is three pieces that I've probably heard the CBSO play each of them between five and ten times in the last couple of decades. But I know I'm really going to enjoy it. Mm. Um, so getting to sit in my seat in Symphony Hall, um, you know, fantastic acoustics, one of the best consoles in the world, one of the best orchestras in the world, you know, playing music that I've helped choose. It's great, I'm getting better mm. than that in terms of job satisfaction. Mm. So, you know, all the other stuff, you know, and tomorrow's concert day, I will probably spend most of the day doing, you know, stuff that's a bit tricky and maybe not that rewarding, but I've got the concert to look forward to. So that, yeah. that fires me up. Um, I think certainly um, the opportunity to, going back to the point earlier, the opportunity to continue to you know, reach new audiences, do new things, to innovate, to try to sort of um, uh, yeah, do things we perhaps haven't done before, which is, which is hard in this business. Um, but that stuff I find exciting. So mm -hmm. obviously, you know, you're always more, I think in general, you're probably always more, uh, you know, excited and motivated by the things that you haven't done before than by the things that you have done before. So mm -hmm. obviously after 19 years, there's a certain number of things that I recognise have to come round you know, like clock work, and that's fine. I do them, it's fine, I'm not, you know, mm -hmm. I'm not doing them grudgingly, I'm mm, doing them because mm. they're important and yeah. I have to do them. But obviously the more the more inspiring things are the things that we haven't done before. Yeah. Um, but I genuinely, as I say, I just genuinely enjoy the work I get. I, 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 I still, I still, you know, just get a huge enthusiasm out of going to concerts and, and you know, being around music and musicians. Mm. And that was, you know, right back to my teenage years when I first started going to concerts. Mm. So. I'm lucky that I'm working in something where the product is so very, you know, visible, audible, um, and 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 your passion. completely ephemeral in one sense. Mm -hmm. You go and it's gone. You just mm -hmm. have your memory or maybe a broadcast, um, but tremendously, you know, rewarding and enjoyable while you're there. Absolutely. Well, and I think those is. memories carry on, don't they? Because I know when I know when I was in my teenage years, my my mum used to is a big classical music yeah. fan. And, and and was a massive fan of Simon Rattle, yeah. so she was always dragging me along yeah. to see the CBSO. Yeah, and you probably and, have some and strong I memories. I have lots of strong memories yeah, 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 of exactly. pieces I liked, pieces I didn't like um, in my teenage years. So I, 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 I think I, whilst it is ephemeral, it, it is also long lasting. Really important, and I think all of us can remember that. You know, we, you know, it, I, I think that you know the things probably that I remember best 
and on my deathbed will remember best are all the family holidays I've had and all the cultural experiences I've had. Mm. I absolutely won't remember the details of the budget meetings. No. And I won't remember. <laughs> I hope Actually, not. I probably, to an, even though I'm a very passionate football fan, I will probably remember far fewer of the specifics of, of, of the football games that I've watched than of the concerts that I've been to and mm. the plays and the operas and mm. the theatre and things. So I think that's right. That, you know, it, the fact that it's not physical... Um, doesn't mean it's not real. Mm. I think those those mm. the value of those experiences mm. is very very real. Mm. And it's interesting because I think what what's common amongst that is it is that it's emotive and it moves people. Yeah. Do you, do you think that? And clearly that you know is is your passion and fires you up for your work. What would your advice be to people who perhaps don't have that in their work? Yeah, it's it's. I mean, I've been very lucky, as I say, to you know, well, lucky I. I chose to be in the career that, that I chose mm. not entirely like. Um, but um, nevertheless, I think, you know, this certainly this business of, 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 of orchestras and classical music, you know, of course, you know, there are other satisfactions as with any job. Um, I do always say to people when they're thinking of a job here or if I'm interviewing them, you know, it will help if you like coming to concerts because for sure, because we don't offer many other perks, you know, they don't get a jag, you know, they don't mm. get a, you know, they, they don't, you know, they get, you know, satisfactory pay, but it's, I'd be lying if I was saying it was anything more than that. Um, so I think, you know, enjoying the concert is, is an important part of it. Um, but I think um, you can also develop that passion over time. I mean, you know, we've employed a lot of people here, and indeed board members, for instance, as well as staff, who perhaps come in saying, I don't really know anything about this, you know, who perhaps mm. we've employed because they have a, 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 a transferable skill set in marketing or finance or mm. fundraising or something um, and they've been on a journey mm. um, of discovery of, of, of music and of how it makes them feel and of, and of um, understanding and reacting to music in ways that they perhaps hadn't ever thought was mm. possible mm. so I do think you know you, 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 that's slightly different from a knowledge of it mm-hmm. but I don't but it, but it goes back to what I was saying earlier about you know Fundamentally, I don't think this is a particularly difficult art form. I think it's much easier to react to a, a big Mahler symphony or a Tchaikovsky or a Shostakovich or Elgar or whatever it is than it is to understand most contemporary novels or mm. poetry or, or, or visual even. arts yeah. or theatre. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think I think people have got this all wrong. Really, mm-hmm. I, think it's, I think it's very easy um, because it does touch you, yeah. and of course, it can mean different things to different yeah. people, and it's totally international and. Uh, you can take away a certain amount. I guess where it, I suppose where it is in common with, with with other art forms is you can take away a certain amount at the first experience, but then go back and listen again, mm. and you'll take something more out the mm. second time, and mm. it'll be different. And that's yeah. and I think that's absolutely fine. Mm. Um, most you know works of classical music. What's so what's so wonderful about it is it doesn't have a fixed meaning. That's what's that's what's so interesting mm. is that. Um, it can, you know, it can mean absolutely different things to different people. Mm. So I think, I think, I think that's a joy, and I think people can people can come to that mm. whether or not they have a sort of a knowledge of the repertoire or a knowledge of how music works or play an instrument or anything mm. like that. So I think, you know, I think I think that is possible, and I think in any that's probably true in in any business. But I can yeah. absolutely accept that, you know, there are probably other jobs that I could be doing where I wouldn't have that same sort of absolutely gut reaction to things and mm. you probably want you know other things to compensate for it whether it's the work-life balance or yeah. the salary or the you know um 
recognition or, or, or sense the impact of achievement, the impact that, that it, has. That it yeah. has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, I like to think, you know, we have a bit of that as well. Yeah. So one last question. Do you play an instrument yourself? Yeah, I'm a very lapsed violinist. So I played the violin from age about seven, eight, maybe, um, until I finished university, you know, on a regular basis and then only very irregularly since. I also sang a lot in choirs. So mm-hmm. I, all my time at university, I sang and ran choirs a lot and carried on singing for my first few years working in London. Um, that too is is lapsed for, for now. Um, though, you know, my love of singing, I hope, you know, it's found a different expression through the many choirs that we run mm. here. Um, but it's definitely there for later. I mean, I, yeah. you know, when, I, when I'm no longer working quite such crazy hours, my violin certainly will. I, I like the thought of, you know, finding time to play chamber music. I like the thought of rejoining choirs. I mean, my father, who is just about to turn 86, still sings at the church choir that I sang with him for mm. 10 years. Um, and you know that I think that will always be there. So mm. I think I think once I've stopped uh, organising quite so many concerts for a living, uh, I will get back to uh, making more music, uh, dusting fun. off your own for, 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 vocal cords and yeah, violin for fun, for fun. Brackets if only mine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Stephen, it's been great to talk to you today. Thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for asking me. Stephen's matter of fact about his qualities as a mad creative, as I blatantly put it, and left-brain logical pragmatist, but it's a winning combination. He keeps fresh in the role by being very connected to the passion behind why he does what he does, and the value it brings in society. Stephen is explicit about the challenge of leading an organisation following the departure of Simon Rattle in 1999, and clear that the CBSO can and must continue to raise the bar in terms of the value they bring and the quality of what they do. And I think that's something that every organisation should be considering, not just how do we raise the bar by increasing turnover and profit, but how do we provide quality services at a lower cost to create a more positive impact in society? I think that's something to think on this week, don't you? That's it for this podcast. I was your host, Jude Jennison from Leaders by Nature. Keep leading and I'll come back soon with the next interview on Leading Through Uncertainty. (music) 